Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Rabona Podcast. Once again, I'm Musa Kwonga, joined by Ryan Hun. Hi, Ryan. Hello. And Michael De Silva. Hey. Clutching his trusty coffee in his right hand. <laughs> and this week, with the Barcelona documentary on our mind, excellent documentary called Take the Ball, Pass the Ball. The topic we're thinking about this week is that of the importance of identity to a football club. And we're going to range across a few clubs. We'll start with Barcelona and we'll start with Ryan. So this documentary is fantastic. We'll be talking to Graham Hunter a bit later. But Barcelona's identity, how do you see that affecting their success over the last few years? Well, I mean, using the documentary as an example, which focuses, or it's based on Graham's book, um, which was Barcelona, the making of the greatest club in the world, I think it's called, which is a really good book that focuses around Guardiola's appointment and um, that era when they were, in my opinion, the greatest club side I've ever seen. You can, if you go back through history and pinpoint certain points, that Guardiola Barcelona side change football, right? You know, and honestly, I think I I I have never feared an opponent more than that era of Barcelona. There was something about that side that, as soon as they got the ball, it was almost like it would instill like pure panic through you. And I think that comes from their identity. It's almost like it, it's as effective psychologically as it is physically or on the pill or tactically. You know, there are certain teams. I mean, um, I, I mean, I, I would agree with your assessment of Barcelona as the greatest side, the greatest side I've seen. And there was a team that was similar to that, AC Milan, actually, in the early 90s. I think the closest to that. And it was said of Milan that they were offering a goal up before they got on the pitch because they had this incredible aura. Mm. And their aura derived from different things, more the high press, but also the, the, the legendary three Dutchmen, Philip Van Basten and Rijkaard. Uh, Michael, how, how have you seen Barcelona's identity over the last few years as, as a factor in not only their success, but in, in relation to the legacy they leave in football? Well, it's interesting to see where they've arrived to in the post-Pep era. Um, because watching them against Atletico at the weekend, it's, um, it's, it's so, so different. Um, and they've really evolved. And I wouldn't say it's necessarily a... I mean, I would agree with Ryan. They're the best. We're a similar age, but it's the best team uh, in my lifetime too. But I wouldn't say that it's necessarily a decline to where they've, they've got to now. They've just changed. Right. Um, and I think Valverde is implementing a more pragmatic but just of, as effective style. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because he's been criticised a lot, Valverde, but 
What has impressed you about, I mean, I, I, I'm a big fan of his. What has impressed you about what he's changed at Barcelona? I think it's that they are just as effective without having to, well, I mean, the, the, the documentary is pass, take the ball, pass the ball. But that philosophy is, 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 is long gone. It's history. It's, the, it's how they've taken players that are not necessarily that typical Barca mold, but still makes, makes them effective. Um, players like Arturo Vidal, you right. wouldn't see him in a, in, a, in a Barca shirt five years ago. Or Paulinho, I suppose, but it as worked. well. He's, well, he's the, the, the best example of that. Um, but it works. I think that has to do with when you have um, sides that, or eras of a specific team's identity that completely changes the landscape of football. So, you know, Ajax early 70s or the Dutch side, then, you know, Saki and Milan in the late 80s, early 90s, and then this, and then this Guardiola side, football catches up. Right. And therefore, it's almost unfair to compare Valverde's Barcelona with Pep's Barcelona because mm. they were operating in different circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. The rest of football woke up to Pep's ideas and developed. Then you're dealt with a problem that you, Pep's Barcelona weren't dealt with, which are teams that are um, also trying to play that way and are adapt to defend against sides that play that way. You have to counter that with another strategy. You saw with Barcelona a real shift to a, another end of the spectrum under Enrique, Luis Enrique. Valverde, in my opinion, is pulling it back a little bit to like a place in between the two the two houses, if you know what I mean. So they have played some really, really good football under Valverde, but they've not been as free-flowing as they would have been under Pep. Mm. Or have That's been. funny because Klopp has actually reigned in Liverpool a little bit. There's almost something to be said about we're now seeing a return to match control. So if you look at like Liverpool, incredible pressing high on the mm. pitch, slightly reactive in a sense. It was positive. It's strange because it's pressing or counterattack is still a conservative strategy, but it's almost sort of ultra conservative. Like we push high up, they get the ball, make a mistake. Whereas Valverde's um, Barcelona, if you look at how they set up against uh, Atletico, four central midfielders across the middle, Sergio Roberto, Busquets, Arta, and um, Vidal. Vidal. And Sergio and, Roberto playing in midfield right, was right. quite a quite a rare occurrence now because he's he's been played predominantly as a right back. He was very mm. good inside actually, Roberto. Roberto, you play inside when you want match control. And mm. it's funny because if you look at last year, Valverde sacrifices match control, brings in Paulinho because Paulinho is incredible. He's a breaking runner, probably mm. the best, best one of the best five midfielders, maybe I would say in that role instead of the breaking runner from midfield in world football. Sorry, can I just say, yeah. I find it incredible that you say that because I think back to the, the, the Paulinho I knew at Spurs. His transformation, I mean, since going to China has been remarkable. And but, obviously he's back there, but what he offered was incredible. Paulinho was that before he went to Spurs? Yeah, and also actually, though, I thought there were signs of it at Spurs when he first joined. That, there was a lot of those players who signed because that was off the bail money, wasn't it? it was that, well, that summer when Ericsson arrived, yeah. Paulinho arrived, Lamella arrived, yeah, yeah. and a few other players that didn't work out. Mm. And it just, it was such a massive change for Spurs back then because they'd lost their key, key guy. Well, firstly, I don't think he, he, he fit into the system at that time. Vias Boas was in charge around that time. There was also a problem with his confidence and a little bit with his attitude as well. When you get that early goal, the early rush, run of goals, it vindicates your playing style mm. and people then get people then get behind it because he wasn't the kind of Brazilian people expected to have. I think if he'd been Uruguayan, actually, he would have got an easier ride, but people mm. expected, you know, technical flair, 
one, two touch, pass and move. And that's not him. I mean, he's a broken field runner. I mean, the great example of that was when they beat, I think Brazil beat Uruguay 4-1 in a World Cup qualifier. And he was magnificent and mm. just tore Uruguay to pieces mm. in a way that hasn't really been done much before or since. Yeah, true. You're doing that to Uruguay, you're pretty special. Um, and what I love about Valverde is he took Paulinho that first year, went undefeated in the league till the last, well, till he won the league, mm-hmm. brings in Arthur, Arthur, who's basically kind of like, you know, Xavi's younger cousin. I'm almost. a big fan of Xavi's Arthur. younger cousin. And then that's immediately saying, okay, that was last year. And that was Bass that would hit you with a broken field run. And now we're going to control the play and regulate. Mm. So it's a kind of fascinating, Valverde keeps giving opponents new problems to deal with, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah, yeah. it's credit um, to Valverde that he didn't feel like pressure to continue that and he's, he's shaped the team in his own image because it's all too easy at Barca to, to feel pressure to continue that, that heritage, you know. Absolutely. And I think if we look at their opponents at the weekend, we see a team who have also stuck to the guns, Atletico Madrid. Mm. They're a team I would call sort of football's minimalists. They have these highly efficient attacking playmakers, very industrious. So you've got Thomas Lamar, who's still struggling to adjust, but he'll get there, I think. Um, Antoine Griezmann, players who seem to thrive almost on minimal opportunity, um, but who break very aggressively. And almost when you look at Leca Madrid, when you must play out against them, you sort of see this sort of two banks of four. Mm. It must be like watching sort of portcullis descend in front of you because they're so aggressive, (laughs) they're so committed. And they just get a single goal and just pull up the drawbridge. I mean, Mm. they're just the... They're an absolute force of them in their Technical own way. terms, they are an absolute bastard to break down. Oh, they're brutal. Yeah, Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I remember like coming in the Europa League last season when Arsenal played them at home and had them completely wobbling and conceded. I think Atleti were down to 10 men as well. We're 1-0 up and then Atleti get a, a goal quite late. And it was the worst thing for Arsenal because you just knew going to the wonder. Oh no. With, with them carrying an away goal as well. It's just... It's good night. Isn't, not isn't that incredible? I find it so amazing. It's almost like watching one of those sort of tactical battles, these sort of like fantasy, like Lord of the Rings <laughs> battles. Like, we're just not going to get through there. Yeah. We're not going to. Yeah, and you can, it's so inevitable. You, they can go 1 0 up against you after 15 minutes. Mm. And only a team like Barca, as Kevin Williams, actually, Kev, I think I mentioned before, his Twitter handler is at Kev Fee Will. Excellent follow in Barcelona. And he was like, there's just very, very few teams in world football after going 1 0 down against Atletico Madrid that can actually come back into it. Like mm. it's. It's like the average team going 3-0 up, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the game on, on, um, on the weekend, um, Atleti-Barca, was not a, not a great game. <laughs> and um, it was a really, really tough watch for at least 70 minutes. Yeah. And then got quite fun. Yeah, last it, was, 20. it was nice to see Dembele come off the bench and make a contribution because um, he had a tough start to his career there. Yeah, and I think that it was, uh, you know, it was a massive goal because if if Barca hadn't have uh, equalised, Atleti would have been top. Mm. Can I throw this in well because this is something else to talk about in relation to identity. So Usman Dembele is part of Barcelona's new look, and the challenge he has had uh, there's inconsistency, but you know, he scored some really important goals. He scored, I think at Sociedad, which is a horrible play. I mean, <laughs> Barcelona fans, if you want to make a Barcelona fan shiver down to their very bones, just mention the two words, Real Sociedad. Where of them, they'll break out in hives. <laughs> and he scored a vital goal against Sociedad, vital goal against Atleti. And I think the challenge he has is not only the inconsistency, but he is someone who doesn't fit the Barcelona mould. He loses the ball a lot. Defensively, he struggles, but he is an unbelievable wild card. High risk, high reward player. He's, right, he's right. someone who will lose the ball a lot, right. but he will pop up with something really magical in a in a really important moment he's but he reminds me a lot of a um of a he's different 
kind of build and style, but in that sense, very much like Alexi Sanchez, mm. you know, can be infuriating at times when you're trying to control games, but will get you out of trouble and score something out of nothing. Yeah, or I think patience needs to be shown with Dembele. He's very he's, young. Yeah, he's he's got it. Can I say as well, Barca will be a lot happier when they sort out their fullback situation. Because if you have a left back that shores up the left really mm. effectively, you allow room for a player like that to operate. And I think you need to have that, that room. So the free spirited approach, you need to have, it could be a Lucas Hernandez type player, you know, who basically just takes control of everything from the halfway line onwards and you allow them the pocket of space to operate. And then also it's your midfield issue. So I think Barca's problems are more systemic because if you've got a centre midfielder who pulls out to the left and covers that flank along with the left back, then you give Dembele the sort of 25 yards mm. of crucial space to tuck in and really just go for it. I'd like to see uh, Barca go in for Alexandre um, because I think Sandro is a bit uh, unsettled at Juventus. Right. Like he came out and told... Um, La Gazzetta della Sport the other day that he wants to play in the Premier League at some point mm. and um, <clears throat> I think even I think Man City immediately were like oh really <laughs> wow but I think but I could really see him working well at Barca City loves him a fullback he's co- Guardiola co- sorry to be Guardiola has he collects he, he was a, collecting yeah, midfielders he's, he's before a, now he's collecting fullbacks yeah he's a fullback hoarder yeah uh, there was a good four or five year stint on Football Manager when as soon as you started the game, Alexandra went to Spurs every year. <laughs> I'll tell you that. infuriating. <laughs> well, speaking of Spurs. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> Segway alert. Segway, listen, we need to talk about Spurs. Because it's almost like we know what we're doing. <laughs> I know. Eh? Um, Spurs, now there's another club that have a fantastic sense of identity. Actually, off the field as well as on the field. Mm. Like Atletico Madrid, you know, spanking brand new stadium. Uh, in the works and just Daniel Levy is someone who has just got to add a few more panels yes but but, <laughs> but Daniel Levy is the chairman of Spurs I want to give him some credit here because fantastic negotiator always gets a great price for his players really cares about the club and maybe the process of growth has been slower than Spurs fans would wish but the thing I love about what he's done is if the machinery if, if one part of the machinery changes tomorrow they're still so well set mm. for the next 10 years like they can they can keep producing at a high level. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, Daniel Levy's been at Spurs for a long time and it's easy to forget that he's gone through a lot of managers, you right. know, before settling on Pochettino, who's one of the longest serving now in the whole of England. But before that, you know, they were, Levy was really going through them. And he's what was really important to him was to find a manager that brings success that hasn't come in the form of, tangible form of trophies yet, but, you know, adheres to this... Uh, this attractive style of football. Right. Um, and it's, he's, he's really found his man in Pochettino. I'd really like to see him once the new stadium is, is open and the more money is rolling in, mm. which match revenue doesn't contribute a huge amount, but he, Levy really needs to start backing Pochettino. Otherwise he'll lose him and he'll look back on this period in a few years time and think, ah, oh, I really should have, I really should have backed that guy a bit more. What were the hallmarks of Spurs? 3-1 win over Chelsea that most impressed you? Because I know there, was, there were quite a few typical Spurs features in that victory. Well, I mean, I think it was a tactical masterclass from Pochettino. Quite often he gets, he gets a lot of praise and some people say, well, yeah, but what has he won? But he completely outthought Sarri uh, in this game. And to an extent, I think Chelsea were found out a little bit. Um, Jorginho was, was targeted. That was, um, that was the main 
um, strategy. Uh, Ali played a fantastic game. I think he was a bit unlucky not to get man of the match. Son got it in the end for a great goal. But Ali closed him down at every opportunity. And when it wasn't him, it was Ericsson. And they pinpointed Jorginho as the as that deep-lying playmaker that we've paid tribute to in, in previous podcasts. Um, and the effect of that was that rather than Jorginho dictating the play from deep, they were forced into giving the ball to Kante. And Kante, for all of his qualities, is not the kind of guy you want distributing the ball. Right. Um, and Kante actually saw a lot of the ball in that game, but for obvious reasons wasn't able to, to make it count for Chelsea. And they lost the ball a lot. And Spurs were able to to take control. Can I just throw this in as well? It just occurred to me while you were talking that the challenge that Chelsea have is it's so clear about how they play that they don't have that plan B. Does that make sense? Mm. Like if, if people work out what you're doing, and this is why Valverde, what he's doing is important, is you have to be able to make adjustments, as they say in basketball. Like how can you play? Can you play differently? You look at like, you know, basketball, like Golden State Warriors, they can play the aggressive bang-up style, or they can just torture you with a mm. shooting from outside. And I think that's the challenge that Barcelona have. And they lost 7-0 in that semi to, Bar- to, to, to Bayern, sorry. In the Champions League, they didn't have a different approach. Mm. Once, you know, Bayern bullied them in the wet, the waterlogged <laughs> pitch, they didn't have anything else. It's a big they, test now for Sarri, really, to yeah. show what he's got. And yeah, you say, I mean, his in-game plan B was non-existent. Um, but... I think he's going to have to analyse this game carefully because Chelsea are playing Man City in less than two weeks now and they're going to need a plan B. I wonder if he um, is going to switch it around a bit because I remember when they played away at West Ham and he, I think that was the first game I can remember him playing Jorginho as the deepest line midfielder Mm. and Kante was operating, there was at points, I think we mentioned it on the podcast, there was times where Kante was the furthest man forward Mm. and starting in a right wing position. How exposed they were against Spurs and they were very, very easy to walk through. Mm. And that totally plays into Spurs' style, I think. And if, if you if you play Kante in a different position where he isn't able to protect the back four, you saw how easy it was for Spurs to... I, th- to... I think that's a bit unfair. I think it was... It was, uh, it was the, the, the issue was forced by some fantastic pressing from Spurs. Well, no, this is what I mean. I mean, that you know Spurs are going to do that. Mm. So if you remove the guy who is the kind of buffer, or not remove him, but, you know, you're, you're sacrificing that element for some guy who's playing the ball more, that does make it easier for Spurs. And this isn't like, not, this isn't taking credit away from Spurs because they're just going to play the game that they, they played. What I mean by this is that I think that might be a wake up for Sarri to actually be like, right, we can't rely on Jorginho to get us out of trouble and yeah, just dictate the play. It's definitely a wake up. This is, but this has happened to Chelsea before because when Chelsea won the league with Fabregas playing such a great role alongside Matic, the next year people went for Fabregas, mm. big time. Mm. And it was like almost, the analogy I would draw is a bit like, um, you're going to laugh at me, but the, swift boating. So you know when John Kerry was like running against Bush, right, in the election? And they targeted John Kerry's war record. Like they took his greatest strength and made his greatest weakness, right? There are some teams when their identity is so clear and they so clearly have a strength. Mm. The key is to make that the greatest weakness. Mm. So Argentina in the qualifiers for the World Cup, the way Messi was targeted, the way that Chile targeted Messi in the Copa America finals, Mm. like he's a supply line. We don't actually isolate Messi. We literally suffocate him. I just think it's fascinating that Chelsea have been caught twice like this like mm. you know like I say Fabri- happened to Fabregas happened to Jorginho and it's the deep line midfielder problem again yeah it's how they react to this it's going to be really right, interesting right. absolutely but, but 
to give praise to Spurs as well, they've they went through a little bit of a wobble and they look a lot more smooth now. And I think that was a that was a big game for them coming back off the international break ahead of the North London derby next week. I think it's it a good a, performance and a good result. I yeah, think it, was, it was massive. It's strange because it's Tottenham's best start to a season in many a year. Let's just say I think it's mm. over twenty years. But there's this perception that they've been playing badly. It's it's or 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 not um, not having you know not in a great run of form. But they're actually doing really really well and winning games ugly. Um, it's just that Liverpool and City have just taken bigger steps forward. Um, well, they had that and, blip and around Spurs. just before the Brighton game, didn't they? Where they weren't playing particularly well, and mm. I think you said you were saying at the time that if the the North London derby was that week, you'd yeah. be really worried about it. So I think since then it's been a lot more positive because it was quite strange where they, it was like it was their most successful start to a season, but yeah, it, they weren't playing particularly well. Well, this was it. It was more to do with how they were playing rather than the results yeah. they were picking up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, and I think also crucial in the last couple of weeks has been. Um, I think Spurs struck a deal with um, South Korea that they would keep hold of Son during this international break. Right. So he was really, really fresh coming into this Chelsea game, whereas before he would have been um, travelling halfway around the world. I think it has something to do with the Asian Cup. Um, but yeah. And can't, Spurs haven't signed anyone. Like, can we also just throw that in again, just to remind people, Spurs haven't signed anyone. Yeah. Like, it's unbelievable what, what he, the job this guy is doing. Mm. Um, yeah, you know. yeah. I mean, I do think it was a bit overplayed that they didn't sign anyone. I didn't think it was quite the, such a drama that everyone made it out to be. But um, yeah, I mean, Lucas Moura, who's had a really good start to the season, is not in there at the moment. Lamella, who's been playing really well, not in there at the moment. So the competition for places is already really fierce. Um, I think it's in other areas that Tottenham could improve. So maybe the football manager dream signing of Alexandre would. (laughs) I think they need another central midfielder. Would happen. Yeah, well, it's a strange one because I think Harry Winks is developing into something really, really good. Um, Eric Dyer, as much as I, I do like him, I don't think he's quite got that enough quality. If Tottenham want to seriously compete at the top, um, and also at fullback as well, there's a couple of, you know, if you again, I mean, I don't want to criticise individuals that are, are playing well, but Ben Davis, Serge Aurier, they're not the kind of guys that are going to win you titles. Can I say this actually in in the defence of players like that? And to add to your point, it's always interesting whether a certain football is where you feel. And we'll get onto this maybe in a moment with a Sancho, Jadon Sancho corner. There are some footballers you look at and their peak is not in sight. You know, when Neymar arrived in Europe, I remember thinking, I, I can't see how good Neymar's going to get. Mm. You know, and Raheem Sterling to an extent, the quality is so high. Whereas some players you look at and you think, I can see the ceiling. I can see what Eric Dyer's ceiling is. He's yeah, a, exactly. Does that make sense? Yeah, he's, yeah, of course. He's a seven and a half, eight out of 10 yeah. throughout a season. Yeah, yeah. But in order, and this is a problem that I think United have had before, not yeah. to bore you with that, but this challenge of the players you have at their best are 20% below yeah. the championship level. Well, this is where a couple of years ago when United were interested in signing Dyer, like 40, 40 or 50 million, I was like, Should have got rid. do it. Goodness me. Do it. But at that time, Harry <laughs> Wink's development wasn't where it is now. Um, Wanyama, I think, had just arrived. Mm. Um and I think Spurs were more interested in building something. Can I um, just throw something in here? I mean, I'm not going to, I wouldn't want to name drop one of my own articles, so I won't. Um, but, but you will. 
Well, no, because that's that would be arrogant. So that's not. Shall arrogant. I do it? Which well, one, no, what, no, no, on. no. It's, it's arrogant. I don't want to do that. But you know, the, the challenges that Chelsea have with their midfield, or in that one game, or that teams have been predictable. There's something to be said for having these kind of hybrid number eights where they can kind of play all three positions in the midfield. So mm-hmm. you've got Winks can play all three, I would say. Mm-hmm. Foden at some point will be able to do it. You know, Fabregas never quite adjusted to playing all three, if, if we're fair. Like yeah. he was good and, you know, at the very top level, like Fabregas was good defensively in some games, but others. Yeah. So I almost wonder now if the key is to kind of, and actually Witzel at Dortmund right now is great in all mm. three positions, mm. to almost develop these players where you're presenting a constant number of new problems for attackers. Mm. Does that make sense? So when they look at, when someone presses Kante, they're like, yeah, but he can play out. Or Jorginho, yeah, but he can tackle. Like there's that amazing move that Son put on Jorginho for the goal mm. where he outpaces him. But also Jorginho hasn't got the defensive chops to get a good tackle in, yeah. even with his shoulder or his feet. Exactly. So I'm always wondering if that's the... the yeah, you thought. want Kante in that position. Well, to, to be honest, Chelsea don't really want any defensive mid- midfielder in that position for that goal. <laughs> no, but, true, true, true. But you see what I'm saying? Like, absolutely. Winks yeah. has the full, he has the full toolkit. That's why he's exciting yeah, to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. That's why someone like um, Lucas Torreira is quite exciting because he's seen as this like destructive you know, midfielder, but he's a wonderful passer of the ball and is he passes forward a lot more than you would expect a deep line defensive midfielder to do. Can I draw an analogy actually? Go on. Graham Sunis, who yeah. I loved on the pitch. Sunis, of course, and Pogba have their own but Graham Sunis, extraordinary player who was actually the you know the forerunner of this type of style, can play any position. Sunis could have screened the back four, mm. was Brilliant at linking play and had a great shot on him. And actually, Torreira almost got a cracking goal against Bournemouth. Yeah, hit the post. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he's a, he's a wonderful player. He's brilliant. He's had a few man of the match awards recently and thoroughly deserved. I think he is a really really exciting signing. Twenty three, twenty two years old. Mm. Can I say like the the and I've said this before I think on this podcast, but the Uruguay midfield they put out in the World Cup of, of Torreira and Bentancourt yeah. was the most Uruguayan midfield <laughs> I've ever seen. Like it just had everything. It had technique, it had power, yeah. it had like tactical smarts, movement. It was just, oh, I was like, this is a midfield. This is like, yeah. You could put that midfield in any level, like, and it would be, it'd be gold. Now I've waxed rhapsodic about Uruguay's midfield. Um, <laughs> time to bring in some, some, out, some outside uh, inputs. The expertise of Graham Hunter on his fantastic documentary, Take the ball, pass the ball. Cool. So first, of all, let's have jump straight in. So this documentary is fantastic. Absolutely love it. How how has the response been at your end? Uh, what kind of feedback have you had so far on it? You know, it, it's it's hard to speak about other people um, giving you glowing reviews because it sounds uh, a little bit self-congratulatory. But if we could have dreamed up the way that people spoke about the film since they've seen it, then we'd have chosen some of the words that they've used, ranging from an appreciation of the editing, appreciation of the era that we're describing. Um, People have enjoyed the soundtrack, which you know was... um, Partially composed by Pinto, yes, goals yes. for Barcelona during that era. People have commented time and again about the way in which the players express themselves because you don't just hear players speaking at length, not for the first time, but saying things that they rarely say. But if you, once, well, if you've seen the film and once you do see the film, I think what you'll probably judge too, like the feedback I'm talking about, is the enthusiasm right. with which the players sort of recount their own anecdotes as if it's beginning to sink into their heads how amazing the era was, their achievements were. 
And I think that radiates from the screen, and that's not something that Duncan or I would say we need to get any credit for. But having brought the players to speak about that era in the right way, us asking them the right questions, setting up shots right. that created the right atmosphere, they relax. Uh, hi, Graham. It's Michael here. I just wanted to ask you, um, just to take a step back, um, anyone who hasn't seen the film Take the Ball Passable, can you maybe give us a brief overview of, um, well, firstly, your inspiration behind making the film? At what point did you decide that this was the film you wanted to make? And also um, what you've achieved in, uh, in making it? Well, look, the, the easy way to explain that is that everything has been landed upon me. I happened to be in the city of Barcelona when the club was rebooting under Laporta, and I was a witness. And two editors, two publishers came to me in, I think, very early January 2011 and said to me, uh, we've been reading your articles in the newspapers here. Please write a book. And I took a lot of persuading. Um, I felt that I'd spent so much time on radio and television and newspapers and magazines and online detailing the the manner in which Barcelona had been rebooted, what the characters were like, hmm. and where I thought they might go football-wise, that I didn't think a book was necessary, which shows you the kind of vision that I've got. So I allowed <laughs> myself to be persuaded, and and I found that the, the process of creating the book, not particularly to my taste, I'm somebody who likes projects that turn around m much more quickly than a book, and he's, uh, he's sitting right next to me now, but yeah, a friend of mine, Duncan McMath, was you know a, a budding feature director, and he took the book on his honeymoon and phoned me and said, uh, "It was again, it was his uh, inspiration. We have to make a film out of this." And again, I was like, "Well, like, oh gosh, I don't know. I'm not that sure." And again, I led, I allowed myself to be led by better judgment, and I embarked on on this project whereby we thought we knew the story that we had to tell, but it was quite hard work to, to decide the narrative order to, and also the narrative order of how you tell a film is different from a book because you mm. either get the interviews for the film or you don't right. you know in the book if you if you haven't got Messi talking about something in particular then maybe a press conference or an interview in Argentina will help you get over that hump but in a film you've got to you've got to get the footage mm. actually can so, I say this just to jump in because you've you've made me think of something mentioning Messi because I've never seen Messi speak with so much openness and frankness and like happiness like I mean this is a guy that's meant to be the quiet one but you had him it was like he was on a <laughs> like he was on a chat show like you know, like a chat show host um, let's be honest that um Messi has matured and he's changed and while he would not spend his life talking about football and um, by his own choice, uh, and while football only interests him really in terms of when he's got the ball at his feet, he's begun to understand that communicating with people who want to tell stories properly isn't necessarily a chore, can be useful. Right. And I think that he has, we have hit a seam of luck. Genuinely, I think it's important. Well done. Okay. To recognise that we've come along at a time when he tr he knows us, right? He trusted us, and what you saw his enjoyment of talking about the subject was just him relaxed. Yeah, absolutely, um, and, yeah. and slightly better aged thirty thirty one. What is it thirty one now than he used to be? And I don't. Although I think we treated him correctly, yes. we persuaded him well. But I don't want to grab credit from Messi, Messi, because he's changed, and that's frankly our good luck. So interesting. Uh, Graham, it's Ryan here. I just wanted to say, as someone who had read the, the book before seeing the film, one of the things that I found really amazing about the film was 
I mean, we were talking about that era of Barcelona uh, earlier on in the podcast, and as I was, I'm an Arsenal fan, so at that time there was that famous Champions League uh, tie where, um, at the Emirates, and then back in Barcelona. And I've yeah. never seen Arsenal play a side in my lifetime that has struck genuine fear into me as a fan whenever they have the ball. There was this almost like sense of panic that would happen, and you could sense among players, fans anything as soon as that, that era of Barcelona had the ball and I think you saw that in the Champions League final against Manchester United as well one thing I found amazing and I wonder if it was something that you wanted to communicate was that as a fan watching that side it was quite hard often to humanise a lot of those Barcelona players because they were so devastating it was almost like you were watching like the football equivalent of like a, a pack of killers what I found amazing about the documentary was people like Dani Alves, Victor Valdez, basically showed a side that I'd never seen before and genuinely warmed to because of the documentary. Was that something that you considered or was that something that was just a bit of luck? No, it, I definitely agree with you. I, 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 none of the three of you, I think, are as old as I am. And therefore, I'm going to do a sort of granddad story to answer <laughs> you. In that, you know, you, you, uh, your parents visit and they see your kids, you know, to whom they're grandparents. And they'll say to you, oh, look how your kid's grown. And you're like, really? I didn't notice. <laughs> because if you see your kid every day, you don't notice the incremental changes. But somebody who comes to a situation slightly new to it or after a period will see changes, will see things with different eyes, just like you as an Arsenal fan. So Football Club Barcelona. And in this story, I'm the parent. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was living in um, Football Club in, in Barcelona. And the FC Barcelona um, was initially, as I was building up my relationship with the players, a much more accommodating club that allowed you access so for example um although by the time he made his part of the film Victor Valdez really effectively was speaking to nobody including some was I was going to say yeah it's amazing got him in there yeah so to get him was very hard right he never said no but to pin him down to convince him to to have him relaxing again was a tough task but because in years gone by we had seen Duncan less so because he was working at Real Madrid but I'd seen Victor talking to us in the mix zone or one-on-one in defeat, victory, happy, sad, angry, but open. Danny was somebody who almost always came to the mix zone, and he and I liked each other. I don't know why he liked me. Um, <laughs> I'm not sort of boasting about it, but we got on, we, uh, we laughed, and maybe he recognised a fellow eccentric. But again, I knew that he was witty and funny and sort of devoured life. I knew that Mascherano, if you start him talking about football, there's no off switch, genuinely. There, there just isn't. And I could go on. I, I guess you weren't so surprised about how Chavi came across because no. yes. know, he's passionately in yeah. love with football. But I understand your point. And I think probably, I mean, I think you're in Germany or there's yeah. some of you in Germany, some of you in Yeah, we're in Berlin. Okay, in Berlin. Then maybe you got access to see, I mean, I was speaking again, I don't know, but... I'd had one-on-one time, you know, in different instances with each of these footballers right? on different subjects, either after a big defeat or just before a big final or on a daily basis during a mundane part of the season, whatever it was. And, I, yeah, I knew their character. And I, did, I wanted to let them, I think, if, we go, if you go back, I, I used a phrase, but to try and create an atmosphere where the character I knew they had would shine out. Mm. And in no instance... Did any of them really surprise me, except for Thierry Henry, in terms of the gusto that, that, right. that they took yeah. into the subject with? Because he, he was very clever, and I respect him for this, in that he knew that probably the 
high point of the story we were telling was the point at which he just left, 2010-11. He, he was part of the treble. He'd been strong enough to come to the club at a time when things were breaking down. He says in the film himself that the fans wanted him out, blah, blah, blah. He stayed. He was a crucial part of the treble. But by 2010-11, you know, he had gone. And like any natural competitor, you know, right, you, you were talking about their personalities compared to the, the machine you saw playing on the pitch against Arsenal. Jerry rehearsed his lines and went away and thought about what he wanted to say and gave a performance that was so strong that he knew it would guarantee him to be one of the chief protagonists of the film. And I respect that. That was him going, I, I, if there's a film about this era, I want to be central in it. I don't want to be, you know, a bit part player. And therefore, he just turned out at the Landmark Hotel in London and gave us 90 minutes of his best stuff. 90 minutes. Wonderful. Can I say, there's two things I want to throw in there, actually, Graham. Um, sorry to jump in, but this is important, I think. Firstly, are we going to hear the uncut footage of the Henri interview? Because I think that sounds like football archive material. And secondly, the process of getting Samuel Etu, who was someone that fell out with Guardiola, to speak so openly, and actually, I think, beautifully about the Guardiola era, was, for me, the epitome of that film, because you've got this incredible, honest discussion of the great, intense competitor that Guardiola was. How did that process go about, getting Etu on board in that fashion? Ah, that was nuts. That was absolutely nuts, because, again, he said that he was willing to help, but very hard to land. And eventually he was having one of these all-star charity games that happened to be in Turkey. Two of our guys went out there, Mark and Victor, and it was the, I say the weekend, it was the it was the days of the, the coup in Turkey where there were tanks in the street, people died, martial law came in, It was there was a complete uncertainty about what was going on. And there were two of our teams sitting down with Eto and Eto, like the majority of the footballers were like, Geez, I'm out of here. I am out of here on the first stagecoach. And they said to him, no, you're not. <laughs> you, you have to do our interview. <laughs> and they arm wrestled him into that couch where, as you say, he looks cheeky and witty and he's got that engaging smile of his and a little devilment in his eyes as he talks about Pep. And he had to be arm wrestled into that couch. And the instant the, the interview was finished, he was out of there quicker than he's ever moved across a penalty box because he had a <laughs> private jet waiting to get out of the country. And he just, he did it. Yeah. <laughs> and our guys, who you'll see in the credits, Mark Guillen and Victor Cross, said to him, Samuel, this is too important to chuck because of a military coup. Phrases you don't hear very often. No, but I just want to say before Ryan gives you a last question, I want to say that that... That the fact that you got Etu there, when I first saw him appear on the, on the documentary, I thought, this is a different documentary. This is going to be a real insider look. And I think actually, and I, everyone that hasn't seen the movie, you're in for a treat. Well, not a movie, a documentary, but it feels like a movie. You're in for a treat because I really feel that it shows us something more than the average documentary by a very long way. Uh, one more question, Ryan, you're going to come in. Yeah, Graham, just a quick one before you go, because um, we don't want to keep you, obviously, and thanks for joining us. But I just want, we, earlier on in the show, we were talking about... Um, uh, team identities and how important they are. We wanted to just quickly get your thoughts on this this version of Barcelona under Valverde. Um, we're fans of Valverde. We just wanted to see how you are assessing their season so far. How you see but this Barcelona under Valverde? Yeah, I I agree with you. I'm a, I'm a fan of him as a, as a man. I think he's honest, organised, hardworking. I think he's a valuable part of the football community. I think if you Expect. I think he's probably just about, 
Well, if not perfect, he's he's the he's the right type of man and right type of coach for what is a breakdown era, because there are elements of the Cruyff Guardiola idea left in the squad and in the team. If you think about, I don't know, Busquets, PK, Messi, the obvious ones, but say Alba, Roberto. But there's also star culture. The board doesn't believe in the Cruyff ideas. The Cantera has been derailed um, to be something very nearly unrecognisable from the days when Xavi or Iniesta or Puyol or Valdez were created, if I can use that phrase. Right. Mm. Never mind from the... Because you you all know that Cantera, youth football, is, is like a time-release vitamin. Yes. This manager isn't going to get great influxes. Whether there's you know another Iniesta or Xavi or PK or Busquets of that quality in the academy is another idea completely you know in terms of this guy irrespective of how well the system works is a genius player that that's a, a, a different question what Valverde doesn't and can't count on is a school of players coming through who are good enough to hold down a first team place and who all play the same way with the same mentality Mm. And, and that's because the board have believed for a long time in becoming a version of Real Madrid. Yeah. Buying big name players, uh, giving spectacle, earning money via sponsors, making sure that the, the world is talking about them, whether it's for the brand of football or not. It, more in this board's idea, talking about them for lifting trophies. So this Valverde is an inheritor of you know two jigsaw pieces, remnants of the old, and a new idea when that you know, as a neutral, well, I'm not a Barca fan. I, I don't enjoy anywhere near as much. The football that we see is nowhere near as intelligent or ordered or thrilling. It has its moments. We, we're we watching the guy I am still sure is the, is the greatest footballer ever, in my opinion. And therefore, it's worth watching. And it can be fun. And it's certainly intriguing. But it's nowhere, the, the ingredients that Valverde's got to cook with are almost in no way similar to what Rijkaard at his youngest or Guardiola had at his disposal. And therefore, Valverde is, is a bridge coach. Yeah. And I think he's doing a pretty good job. But he makes mistakes. It's not, his highs are nothing like the highs of uh, Rijkaard or Guardiola. And, and even the second half of Luis Enrique's treble season, the first half I thought was fairly ordinary. Second half was... Un- un- electric, unbelievable! That front three—that's the best front three I've ever seen, and I'm not particularly an Neymar fan. So Valverde has an awful lot to try and live up to without the right ingredients. Therefore, like you, my respect for him stays pretty high. Wonderful, uh, Graham. Uh, well, the respect is uh, is mutual. Um, we, 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 you know, what you produce with this documentary is unbelievable, and we encourage everyone to see it who hasn't seen it, and those who have seen it, we encourage you to see it again. And yeah, we'll be looking out for... It's a very good Christmas present. <laughs> it absolutely is. Uh, congratulations. Gentlemen, you are wonderful. You Absolute are pleasure. Wonderful. On behalf of Duncan and Victor and Mark, thank you very much indeed. Thank no, you so great. much. Have thank a great Take care. Cheers, fellas. Thank you. Thanks, Graham. And we're back. And before we go, a quick roundup of everything else that's been happening of interest everywhere else. So, Michael. Well, I think there's only one place to start the... The fiasco of the Super Classico. Oh, I thought you were going to say Old Trafford. Um, well, we'll get onto that. Um, yeah, it was pretty pretty troubling scenes, to be honest. Um, Bocker's bus getting mm. absolutely p- 
pelted with bricks and all sorts of stuff. Uh, postponed not once but twice. Yeah, it was pretty pretty shocking, really, and a shame. And who knows where where or when that game's going to be played? December eighth is the is, what, is the rumor going around. Um, I even heard that they might play it in Abu Dhabi. Oh my goodness! <laughs> wow. Um, just to guarantee that it gets played without any trouble. Um, so yeah, it's a bit of a mess. As someone who has sat in the comfort of their own home waiting for the game to start, it was well annoying because it kept getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. At least you then... got to watch Atletico versus Barcelona. Oh. <laughs> so it's double whammy, oh, double whammy of sadness. Um, but I think it was just a really troubling situation all around. But I think being in Europe and the corporate nature of European football now, I think a lot of people in Europe look to South America specifically for this almost like how football should be mm. with that, you know, fan kind of like energy and it stuff like that. Over there, but, but also it's worth noting that it isn't just like this for Boca River. It's like this very, very regularly. The other Buenos Aires derby a couple of weeks ago mm. was on a smaller scale, but very similar scenes. Yeah. Stuff like the Boca, the guy was driving the Boca coach fainted and the Boca president had to take the wheel whilst the coach was going, which is... Coach as in bus. Bus. Yeah. Yeah, as in the bus. Yeah, um, not the not the manager. <laughs> yeah, um, that and confused then, me when I first. And heard two the story. and two um, two players were taken to hospital with, you know, pieces of glass in their eye, and then told by the Conmebol um, president or doctor that they were superficial injuries and had to play the game. Yeah, and there was also pressure from TV companies. To, yeah, to and play from FIFA. And from FIFA. FIFA. Um, to yeah. be fair, I think actually River deserve huge credit here because they could have played that game and probably would have won the game and they came out actually in solidarity with Boca and were like listen Boca don't want to play this is outrageous we don't want to play either and I, I think I, as soon as they came out and said we, we're not playing either it was it was definitely off. There was the impression as well I got that when even if they had given the green light and that the game would go ahead I think the players just wouldn't have come out. No. No I don't think I they think would have. there would have been a protest. Um, but then they had the problem of 70,000 people in the stadium Tell them that had waited for a good three hours actually. Yeah. Already. Yeah. And, and then, the overwhelming majority had done nothing wrong. They just want to see a game yeah, of football. And then they were told to go. Yeah. And then it got postponed again yeah, on yeah. the Sunday night. So, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of very good commentary on that. Uh, I would check out uh, Ed Malian. I would check out Jonathan Wilson and Miguel Delaney on Twitter. And yeah, Rory, Rory Smith. Smith, Rory Smith. Like, what else are we going to talk about before we go? Ibar, uh, Ibar 3. Real Madrid nil, yes. huge result, and the performance by Ibar just astonishing display mm. of high pressing. So we have got to give them credit, just because I think a club that size to do something. I mean, they'd never scored. They'd scored three. We got three goals against Real Madrid in total in their entire history. Then they got three in like. They know. were massive value for that result as well. Yeah, they thoroughly, amazing. thoroughly deserved it. Speaking of Spain. My Real Mercia lost in the Mercia derby this weekend. I, say shares I bought Mercia. shares in Real Mercia, but Real Mercia went through a very similar situation that Ibar and Oviedo did, where they're very, very ropey owners over a few last few years. And um, yeah, I bought some shares in Real Mercia. So uh, I am a part owner of a Segunda B club. You're the 1%. <laughs> you shareholder on the Rabona podcast. I, I, can't, I can't read any of the 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 mail outs that they send me yeah. but um, just make sure you're not personally liable for all losses yeah, yeah. thereby incurred yeah. yeah but yeah so that was a shame they lost their first game since I bought the shares <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sancho Corner let's give a quick nod to to our boy Jaden. yeah fantastic looked, assist right he looked really good against yeah. Mainz uh, in decisive moments which are, he's been so good yeah. at those points this season so released uh, Royce yes. um, who squared for Alcacer for the yes. equaliser when Dortmund uh, played Mainz and then Mainz went on to win so 
Dortmund on to beat Mainz 2-1. Yeah, yeah, crucial victory for Dortmund. And yeah, as you say, like a, a crucial contribution from Sancho, who's becoming like, it's re- he's adding some consistency to his performances. Like it was when he first came into the team, he was just every three or four games, he was making those kind of contributions. But every game now, he's he seems to be adding something. The depth um, of his playmaking as well. Before he was like yeah. the wide man crossing. Now he is getting the end of finishing moves, but also initiating from deep, actually in a Pulisic style. True. Yeah. And we should mention that that pass he put through for Royce was not easy. No. At all. Lovely ball. He thread it right through those two defenders and it landed straight at his feet and made it really easy for Royce to to uh, to get the assist. So. Sancho's on corners, which so it literally is. <laughs> Sancho got corner. Sancho corners. <laughs> not anyone takes the corners. That's true, actually. That's a real sign of respect. To, and how old is he? Is it 17, 18? He's 19. Eight, I think he's still 18. Is he? I think he's 19 next month. Yeah. He's 18 until he's 19. So I'm sorry, it works. (laughs) Um, Shout out for for Bayern ballsing it up again. Do you know what? This weekend was the first time I'd seen Uli Hernis change tack a little bit. You know, he's gone from Kovac is our boy to we need to have a chat. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see whether he makes it to the winter break. Match day 17, that would be, which is on the 22nd, I think, of December. Rumours flying around about Arsene Wenger going. There's been a few rumours about Wenger though. And Ramsey going, so it makes so much sense. They're going to be together again. Arsenal and his boy. Shame they'll be in Bayern. But, um, oh, yeah, it's... Oh, oh. Hey, I'm going to bleep that out. We're, we're neutral. I'm yeah. not sure I'd wish the Bayern job on Wenger at this point. I, I, I appreciate the rebuild job to be done. I think it would be a good fit, funnily enough. I just think that Dortmund are so ascendant that it's a very difficult late career job to be doing. Like the rebuild there. Yeah, and there was an interesting interview with him recently, actually. I mean, it was by um, Richard Keyes and Andy Gray, which, yeah, I mean, whatever. But um, as ever, you know, it's Arsene Wenger and he will come out with some stuff that is is brilliant. And he alluded to the fact that actually his next job may not be as a manager. Mm. He seemed, you know, when he, when he was leaving Arsenal, he was very adamant that he wasn't going to retire mm. and he wanted another manage, uh, management job. Do you know what? Just give him like an honorary chairman, like when they Barca did with Cruyff. When Pep was manager, just let him just suggest a few things. And I think we'll he's still got and... a lot to offer as a coach, and I think he's still got that hunger, which is a little bit unusual as someone who's been through so much and been so um, around for so long at the top level. Mm. I'd like to. I'd, I'd be a bit disappointed if he became a director of football somewhere. Yeah. I'd love it. it. Would be so classy. It would be so cool. Like I just think that Wenger's eye for a player, and I kind of just throw some praise for it. Granite Chaka. Granite Chaka, I think, is a terrific footballer who was underused um, in some respects at Arsenal. But I think when, I think Wenger has, Wenger's eye for a player and understanding of how a player fits within a team dynamic is, is still you know, up there with, with almost anyone. I think a little bit of distance would have done him some good. I think so. I think he needed a bit of a break, mm. which is understandable because he's worked mm. very hard for 22 years. On an Arsenal tack, sorry, very quickly, Santi Cazorla, two assists in two minutes in La Liga. I'm just mentioning that because it's amazing to see players come back from injury and not just come back, but come back in such style and be yeah. integral. Going to start introducing Santi Corner soon. <laughs> uh, Manchester United. Oh, goodness. No, no. There's a Crystal team without Palace. identity. There is a team that has no identity. Yeah. How long is that going to go on? Yeah, I don't really know what to say about them anymore. Until they stop delivering shareholder value. Well, that's Oof. exactly it. The nil-nil draw against Crystal yeah. Palace still generated sufficient social yes. media impressions yeah. and shareholder returns for that to be appropriate. You may actually find that nil-nil is the perfect result for Manchester United <laughs> half the season, as long as they have a vaguely positive goal difference yeah. and stay mid-table or upwards. They're delivering excellent bang for buck. 
how is it? I wonder what Jose Mourinho is thinking about what it's doing to his career, his reputation, um, given what he's won and what he's achieved. He's someone else I think could do with a break. I don't think he's enjoying football very much at the moment. I just don't think anyone's enjoying football that much at the moment, looking mm. at that lot. I mean, how can you, how can Manchester United drawing nil at Swiss Palace? But, but I think how can Jose Mourinho be a willing part of, of that failing machine? Maybe someone needs to just be like, mm. you know, pull the plug. He is a problem, but he's not the biggest problem at United. Can I be brutal? He's not the biggest. I problem. think he's actually the perfect representation of the off scene. <clears throat> uh, you know, if you look at what's happening off the pitch, and if you fed all that information to an algorithm and said, okay, now give us the manager that perfectly expresses the athlete towards football at this club, it would produce Mourinho. They're in trouble until the owners go. Mm-hmm. And I don't just mean Mourinho because he's not the only problem. He's part of it. He's the most easily solvable problem. But until the owners go, until Woodward goes, then there'll always be this yeah, kind of Yeah, absolutely. Uh, before we go, maybe just uh, end on a, on a high. Claudio Ranieri, Fulham, picked up a win in his first game. 5,000 to 1 to win the Premier League next season. Do you know what? It's worth <laughs> It's worth five. I would say it's worth five pounds, but that's worth about a euro now. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry, we don't get political on the podcast, but you know. <laughs> five uh, euros on it. Five euros on that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's, a, he's a good man and it's good to see him get off to a good start. I think Fulham, if you look at the players they've got, they they deserve to be a bit higher than they are. Um, Jean-Michel Serri was going to be at Barcelona a year ago mm. and now he's in a relegation dogfight. What must he be thinking of his agent? What must he be thinking of? Yeah, well, sorry, he, needs to, yeah. he needs to start putting in performances that, that are worthy of that kind of link. Oh, oh, oh I thought oof. it was a positive. No, no, I, uh, uh, I, know, I, love, I love that you've said that. I, love no, that you've said that. I mean, I'm, yeah. I've watched a bit of Fulham this season and haven't seen any of Seri this season. Do they get pizza after that game or is it just a clean sheet? <laughs> oh <my goodness>. <laughs> <laughs> no, because he said, he mentioned, there's been a lot of manager yeah. pizza chat this week. Ancelotti was bigging up pizza yeah. on Twitter. <laughs> Once you've eaten pizza in Naples, it's not like Ancelotti. You never eat any, you know, you might as well never eat. (laughs) I think I'd love to interview interview Ancelotti just about food. I don't want to ask him anything about football, just talk to him about get his food recommendations. Yeah, that'd be fun. Well, Ancelotti is a podcast guest. I mean, let's not set the bar. Pizza Corner with uh, Carlo, (laughs) Carlo's Corner. Let's go. Our audience, thank you so much for bearing with us. Thank you much for listening to our thoughts on football and identity. Please follow us on all social media platforms at Robonamag, same handle for each of those platforms. And yeah, thanks for joining us. Tell a friend, tell an enemy. We'll catch you next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, Talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.